So it's Devil's Night, as it were, here in Studio G as we're recording this. Mm-hmm. Where were you known to get into some mischief around the around the holiday no. season, this Halloween season? No, Halloween was never my thing. You yeah. never threw one roll of toilet paper, one egg. You Yeah, I threw one roll of toilet paper, and that was the one that I got caught on. And I'm like, okay, cured. <laughs> Yes, I got caught. I was not suave about it at all. It was terrible. <laughs> well, good for you. I'm, hmm. sure, I'm sure you got the appropriate punishment, huh, when you got home? Yep. Oh, you know. <laughs> yeah, no no mischief for me on my end good. ever. Just, you know, lifelong support of the arts, of course. And we love when the arts support us, especially Schubert Club. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been cultivating a passion for music and fosters an engaged community of music enthusiasts through concerts, music education, museum exhibits, and student scholarships. More at schubert.org and more on a couple of their upcoming events here in a few minutes. But if anything, if I did get into some mischief uh, and and call myself out on the night before Halloween doing some stuff. The punishment from my parents would be to put the bassoon up, or no, you can't listen to your music or whatever. Mm-hmm. That would definitely be the thing. But you know, thankfully I was a a good little boy. So oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever uh, thought about any uh, like? European, how can I say, like composer costumes? Well, I'm I'm thinking about Halloween, and I'm thinking about you know the arts and and the holiday. I'm sure there's been some Mozarts or something running around here. Some mm. powder, some powdered wig costumes or something. Some sexy Mozarts. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, yeah. My friend Lindy, shout out to Lindy. She did a sexy Mozart when I, when we were in grad school. But see, we we've been talking about blackface and all of that stuff. So now, am I problematic when I put on the, the powder wig? <laughs> oh no. When I do that sort of thing, actually, there's that meme going around too of you know you can buy a costume and it shows you in the window what it looks like oh, and right. what's included. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like fifties um, uh, ish podcast producer. <laughs> so what the hoodie? The... <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, the can of Coke or cup of coffee, mm-hmm. set of headphones, all included. <laughs> see, but see, the thing is, you know, I don't even want to make that joke about myself because it's going to get problematic very quick. Like oh, as soon be as sexy fifty something on, as as soon mm. as you pull out the dread wig or whatever, like just you know, right? Just, just no, decide right. to make another decision. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if there's any um, to, I'm working my, I'm working hard to segue here. You know, brilliantly, but um, I'm thinking about these things as a way to introduce, I guess, to set the stage for one of the pieces of music that. I found myself listening to over the week that I wanted to, you know, present here to sort of make the point again, just the general point of this podcast. So I was uh, in my Mozart bag last week and I was in the shower and mm. it got to the magic flute. So I'm listening to the first, Ozit which is the first of the uh, two, I guess, two and a half arias that the Queen of the Night sings in um in, in in that opera and i'm listening to it and i'm listening to the notes go by and the performance of it here by uh luciana Serra, and it's hard to not appreciate here's here's a little bit of of what i mean for folks who may not know Oh, <laughs> 
She good. She good. And she's wearing that crown. I mean, yeah. First of all, is that not a Halloween costume? <laughs> you know, <laughs> no. But but the, but again, the reason I'm bringing it up is because this is some really great music that I found myself paying attention to and and just really getting into just the the genius and the perfection in that Western framework of classical music mm. that Mozart really put on the stage. So, you know, we, we often talk about, uh, and, and the way that we want to shift the ideas around classical music, this thing about, oh, well, we don't mean to completely throw it away. Okay, fine. There's some great music out there, great music by Mozart that even in my free time, I'm listening to and really appreciating. But very quickly, Scott, even pieces of music like that can be connected to the oppressive and problematic systems that right. we don't mm-hmm. have to deal with with more contemporary pieces of music or a renewed way of thinking about programming. You know, we have the Queen of the Night there. If you remember, there have been these uh, writings uh, that have been discovered that talk about how the Queen of the Night represented uh, Queen Antoinette uh, in Mozart's eye because of the relationship that she had with Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint-Georges, mm. you know, the, the the black fiddle player over there. And he was depicted as Monosados, who is the Moor in the magic flute, talk, you know, singing the aria about, oh, moon, you know, hide your face, you know, a black man, you know, lusting over a white woman and all of that stuff. So you see how quickly we can get to something problematic, even with, you know, music that is, you know, beautiful in its own right. But that doesn't mean that there isn't space for other things that we don't have to dance and and tap dance around. It's great music. But even that can be tied to something like anti-blackness. Is there anything in your mind that could be done to update it to skirt that issue in the magic flute? I mean, we can change words. We can uh, change roles and characters. And then what trouble do you run into? I mean, I I think, again, you can make it completely clean. I've I've talked about here on uh, Triloquy when I went and saw Carmen and instead of uh, G-Y-P-S-Y, they were using the word uh, Roma mm-hmm. or Romani throughout the mm-hmm. uh, super titles of the, you know, so you can do that. Or you can find something to stage that doesn't mm-hmm. require, like I said, that sort of tap dance and that sort of dancing around the issue and trying to clean things up and, and fix things up. And to go back to my original point, it is some brilliant music. It is some some really cool stuff to listen to. So where are you at this point? You know, I I feel like our thoughts and ideas are always evolving and gaining and maybe losing nuance every now and again. Mm -hmm. Where are you now? Are we throwing this away or not? Are we throwing Mozart's magic flute away, considering what, you know, we're talking about here today, right now? No. Am, Am I personally? Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not. Are you going out of your way to listen to it at the same time? When was the last time you listened to Mozart in your free time? At the same time, I do not seek it out. Right. That's what that's what I'm saying. So I feel like there's so many different balances. It's easy for us to say, okay, no, we need to hang on to it. But are we actually listening to it and, and paying attention to it in the first place? Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the conversations that has to has to be explored. Uh, serendipitous, the article that I'm bringing in and the and the podcast attached to it, it dives into some of that in opera. Yeah, yeah. So we'll touch on that. And as someone who does occasionally get into some Mozart into his free time, I am not uh, fighting for the tradition. You know, I think there's always something to put in the place, something to explore this alternative as brilliant as it is. And thanks to 
the technologies of Apple Music and YouTube and all of these things, if I really need to go and listen to it, I can listen to it in my own time and an audience full of people don't have to be subjected to it, you know? So heard <laughs> if I were ever to seek out Mozart and I know that opera was his main shtick or his, his big love. I, if I was going to go and seek out Mozart, it would be either the horn concertos or his clarinet pieces. For some reason, those warm me up. Yeah. The rest of his catalog, if it's on, I don't change the channel, but I also don't seek it out. You know, it's, it's just one of those. Okay. I listen. So you were, there. so you were talking about my transformation last week and actually I, I I'm almost drawing issue with it. <laughs> well, maybe we'll get into that in a minute, but you know, we're, we're talking about how I am trying to lend more room and maybe considering, you know, I even hate to say it folks like Gershwin, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I don't think so. That. So, so, so what does that look like? Conversely folks like you actually taking the time to revisit Mozart and these people and decide whether or not you actually are interested in fighting for this aesthetic and fighting for this music in the, in the argument for, to make the case of balanced programming and mm -hmm. all of that sort of thing. Maybe you do need to go back to those horn and clarinet works and decide if you actually care all that much. Mm -hmm. I will do that. And that makes me think of all the people who are in charge of programming at orchestras and opera houses or any sort of arts organization, let's even say radio stations, doesn't mm -hmm. even necessarily have to be public. Um, there are people out there that are going to want to hear that from you, though. And so that's the direction I come from it. Uh, that come from it. That's the direction I come from in that uh, if you're going to program it, make it one of their hits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So not the obscure you know, symphony number 27 of Mozart. If, if you're going to play him, mm. play the magic flute, play symphony 40, play or, symphony you know, 41, the baby. little trifles. Play Ina Klein and knock music. You're saying just, if we're going to get it, give it to us. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, that was the Mozart that y'all were going to get today. So I guess I gave it to you there. Shout out to Luciana Sarah. Shout out to the magic flute. Who wore that crown. <laughs> and shout out to each and every one of you. Let's jump in. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for joining us. To returning listeners, thank you for continuing to support this show and helping us make this project grow and grow and grow week after week. We couldn't do this without you. To new, to new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase and the idea of classical music and recontextualizes it through conversation, through approximation to different types of music, through uh, interviews with special guests and everything that you can think of in an effort to decolonize that phrase classical music, making classical something that's more than Mozart, as brilliant as he was 200 and something years ago. Mm -hmm. There are more aesthetics and more stories that are classic to our experiences. So we do all of that here on the show to help explode that phrase into something that can be applied differently throughout the field 
and in each of every one of our lives. For more information about the Triloquy podcast, you can uh, visit triloquy.org, find out uh, a little bit about some of the folks who make it possible, check out past opuses, and to contribute to the Triloquy podcast, go over to the website. In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from Schubert Club, announcing in November, I guess technically will be in November when y'all hear this, so this month, uh, a free courtroom concert featuring the Lumina Women's Ensemble. Lumina is a professional women's ensemble dedicated to the mystery, beauty, and hope inherent in their music. This concert is going down on Thursday, November 10th at noon at the Landmark Center. You can learn more about that at schubert.org. And as we have been talking about coming up on November 18th, it's our song, our story, the new generation of black voices. This is featuring Damien Sneed on Friday, November 18th at 730 at the Ordway, just across the way from where Schubert Club calls home in the Landmark Center. Again, you can get information on those upcoming events and more at Schubert. Schubert.org. We got part two of my conversation with the host from The Score coming up in the third movement. Uh, we have a, a triloquy that's going to get into, let me scroll my notes here. What are we talking about? Oh yeah, it's going to be Nina Simone. We, we got to bring up you know, one of the people who helped codify that idea of black classical music because y'all got her fucked up out here. Excuse me having to cuss already, but sometimes, <laughs> some, sometimes we can take our, our landmark figures and twist their words in a way that serves an agenda that the person would not have served. Mm. Anyway, I guess that's your preview. But let's go ahead and hop in here into movement one. Such a heavy sigh. Garrett, talk to me. What is going on? No, man? we're going to save it for the triloquy. But just to, I don't know, just to, again, offer another tidbit. Does it not? make you feel a way when there's an artist who you revere, an artist who you really respect, and you feel like through their music and through their interviews, you have an understanding of some of the things they would have stood for. To take that artist and take a quote of theirs and make it uh, validate a point that they wouldn't have, you don't, you you feel, a, you would feel a way about that. Mm -hmm. And maybe I can't pick an example out of your mind, but I'm sure there's there's some sure, artists certainly. Who, who you would stand against a certain organization making them say one thing and and the opposite was actually true, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah, I, can't, I mean, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but uh, of course, you're talking about an artist I would stand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. or I'm, I'm not necessarily stand, but just revere. I don't know if I stand Nina Simone in the same way that I stand Beyonce, but she's just this figure. Whose, whose words and- uh, There's some reverence you're and, saying. Right, and, and whose uh, relationship with this thing that we call classical music was very specific anyway, mm -hmm. coming up in the fourth movement. But we are here in the first movement, and you got uh, an opera-aligned accidental here. What accidental is this getting? Well, uh, we were talking about uh, signs of growth last, okay. uh, last episode, mm -hmm. uh, last opus, and it's still happening because I found this article f about uh, the Detroit opera, on a podcast called Stateside, and I uh, listened along on michiganradio.org. And there was a lot of points that were made in this interview with um, Yuval Sharon, who is the, uh, their artistic director at this point. Are you giving this a sharp flat or a natural? I'm going to give this a sharp. Thank you for the reminder. And uh, I just have to say that there was a good point made right away in that the spectacle that you and I talk about, or at least that I've talked about, that is going to need to happen for me to go out and be 
<laughs> to pay some money and be with a bunch of people. And Opera, again, opera's doing it. By, by spectacle, you mean there needs to be something on fire. There, you know, there needs to be somebody doing a flip. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yep. All this, and I won't see. And and I listened to one of our old opuses on a on a road trip. I want ballet dancers over here and pole dancers over here <laughs> and line dancers in between. Okay, so, so so laying out the things that you need to see uh, to visually engage to get you in the hall, you're, what you're saying is your expectation would be it would not be something visually interesting to you if you were gonna go see an opera. No, what I'm saying is, is that all of this time that I have been saying the opera isn't my first choice, it's not something mm -hmm. that I really wanna go do. Sure. And then I talk about all the things that opera does is what I'm looking for. Mm. <laughs> so I'm starting to think I need to put more respect on opera is sure. what I'm saying and and to open my mind about it. But the Detroit Opera was doing some really interesting things through COVID. They tried a, a drive-through opera where they put on the production in their parking garage and you would tune to different frequencies on different floors and see different parts of it, right? Um, there's this new um, digital aspect, you know, performances happening on green screen and getting mm -hmm. really dramatic. And they're doing all of these things and I'm wondering, you know, this is, this is where the money for the ticket goes. Because if you want this spectacle done well, and, and I know that I want everybody who's involved with it to get paid properly. Okay, so I need to be ready to pay that price right. to go and watch this done well. But they're also looking at ways that they can uh, have a different offering, maybe at a different location or a stripped down production or maybe something all online. Mm -hmm. And it's a way for you to sample it without it taking a big chunk out of your budget for that week. Right, and we're getting into this interesting balance now because it sounds like what you're, ex you, what you're explaining is the, the, the economy experience or the, <laughs> you know, the people who can afford it, you get this, but everybody else will create, will create something for you. It, it's like this balance between I understand and agree that if I'm going to go and see an opera, I want it to be a spectacle beyond just the music. The spectacle costs a certain amount of money. Am I not participating in a gate kept um, mm -hmm. sort of system by perpetuating the right. tradition in that way. Yeah, and I was thinking about this as I was listening along because we already talked about people of color have money. You have to present something that they want to give you the money for. Mm -hmm. That's that that's the thing. But the point that I think is more prevalent there is that it's um, shorter or perhaps less of a of an investment of getting dressed up. You can just look at something online for people who want to experiment with opera. Sure. Sure. Because you know that kids one day they're going to experiment with opera. You can't. You can't stop them. <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe they won't actually. You know, <laughs> I, I know. I'm, not, I'm joking. Maybe that's the one thing they don't have to worry about. Them no, doing. but they, you know, they're talking about addressing changing tastes. Yeah. And maybe even dare I say more youthful tastes of something not lasting three and a half hours. Yeah, that part. Something in English. You know, they, you know, we talked before about a um, a few seasons ago about an opera company that partnered up with a production house mm -hmm. and created like a serialized version of opera. So basically, that is my point, is I'm going to start paying a little bit more attention and also 
trying to uh, give a little bit more space to opera companies that are, um, you know, I don't know what these cost is what I'm saying. And mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to bash on anybody for, pardon, I'm not going to bash on any company for their ticket prices or anything like that, because after listening to this, uh, to this podcast, I have a better understanding of all the things that are going on, um, that are going in behind the scenes. The really big attraction for me uh, in this podcast, though, was when he started talking about being totally Detroit focused. Mm -hmm. He wanted to be all locally focused and yeah. speaking to the issues in that community. Mm -hmm. That was the most attractive piece. Um, talking about doing um, productions in different spaces other than their own. Right. He talked about going and doing a production at a, a theater that Aretha Franklin used to perform at. So there were people that who were going there to see the opera, but there were also people going there because they usually go there and see jazz. Sure. And so that brings in the idea of trying to bring people along, you know, trying to uh, get people that normally wouldn't go to a concert, to an opera, get them in there, yes, but also have something for the traditional opera goer. As we were talking about a few weeks ago this balance this dichotomy of national audience or wanting a national reach versus local impact mm -hmm. do you think that's something that could or should apply beyond the specificity of detroit opera as we're talking about here what would it look like and, and let's let's just speak you know uh directly what would it look like for a minnesota public radio to really become local do you think there would be positive uh impacts or or positive opportunities as we're seeing here with detroit a lot of these opera companies really work hard to have that national reach i'm thinking about the med and washington national national is in the name you know mm -hmm. they try to have that national reach well detroit is going more local is is there benefit to arts organizations of all types going more local it's uh it's coming down to money once again when i first started at american public media there were two studios pumping all the time mm -hmm. there was local npr and national and the only time that the two were simulcast was overnight that was it right and it was hyper local everything was minnesota and mainly twin cities focused and then somebody would quit and they wouldn't fill it mm-hmm and so that attrition would happen. Um, sometimes uh, there were more um, uh, more opportunities to have a, a local presence. And it's something that radio stations across the country have seen for this past year. Um, donations are down uh, across the country. And uh, there's a, a real fight for that dollar. <laughs> and, sure. Um, so I don't want to say too much because I know that there are stations that are just struggling just to keep it going and they're, and, and and they're, some of and they're doing national, really well. And some of those national services really help them, you know, keep the, keep things going on the overnights when they can't afford to, you know, hire an overnight host right. and, and all that sort of and, thing. And, I, and, I, I, I get that, but I'm, I just think it's very interesting, you know, going back to this, um, Detroit opera, uh, story, this podcast that you listen to, if it's working for them, there has to be a version of that that other arts organizations and institutions should be considered. Yeah, they go into that a lot. Is it um, that old question of 
is it more expensive to get a new listener or keep a listener? Mm -hmm. Okay, so they do the same thing, but with opera, because some of these productions take a huge chunk of change to, to put up. Well, we have the ears of some opera people here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, they're always looking for information. They're always looking for something that they can, you know, turn into an initiative. So I'm going to ask you, we're talking about um, opera tickets and, and, you know, all of the competition for the dollar. You got a Friday night, you got a few dollars in your pocket. How many of those dollars are you going to give to the opera house? What is the, what is the ticket amount? $25? $35, maybe you got $100. How much money will you give an opera house and a Friday night? Speaking from the um, the economic bracket and the responsibilities <laughs> that I have. So you say you're going to be at the, econ the, the Econo show that the Detroit Opera got going on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be one of those people. You're going to be stream. They say you can stream from home. It's fine. No, but, 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 no, but what, is that, what is that price for you? Well, what is... What is the number? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I would say I would give as much as $100 a seat. $100. Oh, my goodness. You, <laughs> uh, is your job hiring? No, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> no, what I'm saying is I would be treating this like a special event. Sure. So this it, would be, okay, so that $100 said got, isn't something that you're doing every Friday. No, no, or no. Every, or no, you once said, a month even. You said you've got the Friday night off and you've got the money for a ticket. Uh, or how much would you want to give? If, mm -hmm. Okay, well, if I've got a Friday night off, something's wrong. <laughs> Something, <laughs> something's right. I don't know. Um, no, you know what I'm saying is that the I work Friday nights, and if I have one free, uh, I'm I'm going to make the most of it. You bet. All right. So if I'm going to pay, uh, I said I would pay up to a hundred dollars, but you know, if I could find a, a an opera company, maybe somebody local that. You know, as a smaller company has something going on. All right. Well, everybody, you heard him. Scott got a hundred dollars for one of y'all. So mm -hmm. put 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 some put fire fire breathing dragons or something on the stage, and he'll be there. Mm. <laughs> but in the meantime, thank you to uh, the folks who who uh, yeah wrap us up who who produced this podcast and all that stuff you were listening to. Uh, this all came from MichiganRadio.org. Again, there was a lot of talk because the article isn't that long. It's really more about the uh, podcast called Stateside, which is a a daily podcast offered by Michigan Radio. So when you look at the stateside website, it's Detroit Opera is not what you'd expect. All right. Well, after y'all get done listening to this, go check that out. And uh, we'll transition to our next accidental with a performance from Detroit Opera. This is their take on the Valkyries. It was filmed in front of a green screen with all sorts of cool effects. Yeah. Old music, new ideas for a new audience, I suppose. <laughs> the Valkyries to get us into our next accidental. Music, of course, by Richard Wagner. You know, there is some Wagner that
that I really do appreciate. And I, I think I consider it a bit of a guilty pleasure. We have our uh, second and was final accidental for this week. <laughs> I'm going to give this uh, I'm going to give this a sharp as well. We have two sharps this week. Uh, we have a, an article here from UniArts Helsinki, UniArts.fi. The uh, headline here is professors. Universities need to help classical music students expand their professional views beyond tradition. Uh, professional education, I'm reading, I'm just going to read a little bit. Professional education of classical musicians should better prepare the students for diversifying work opportunities in order to thrive as artists in complex society. Uh, the article, uh, this article is part of a series about the future of UniArts Helsinki from a research standpoint. It's a, a pretty long and in-depth article, but the, the general idea is we're talking about how um, music students need to be offered more because at the end of the day, not all y'all going to be sitting on stage playing Beethoven and, and Rachmaninoff. You know, some of you are going to have, most of you are going to have to figure out something different and something else. I think you know, we return to this conversation in many different ways, but um, you must have taught students in your day that you knew would not make it to where they dreamed they would make it. Not because they didn't have the talent necessarily, but because there's only one person who gets to be the star radio host in this city at that station, you know, where you have dreams for and hundreds of people have that same dream. How, how have you dealt with that in the past? You don't squash the person's dreams, or do you squash the person's dreams? How, how do you engage those students? From, the, from day one, I would teach them, today you might be working at uh, your favorite station, playing your favorite music and love and life, and then suddenly management flips a switch and they change the format, and next thing you know, you're over in Sheboygan at a polka station. Mm -hmm. No disrespect, you are a craftsperson in this business and you need to be able to go where the work is and put together a break and talk about this music in a way that compels people to listen. So that means you need to diversify yourself. You need to be able to talk about country. You need to be able to talk about hip hop. I said, I told him, start a file right now of notable stories so that you can pull on this when you need to jump on the air. Yeah. Things like that. It's interesting that you sort of contextualize it around, oh, you'll likely have to move around a, a lot because, you know, the music school training is you probably will not get the job in the first place, you know, much less the mm -hmm. necessity to jump around. So is do you see that as more of the reality in radio? You'll get a job, maybe just not where you want to be. Mm -hmm. And also think about now how we're uh, also contending with automation and with uh, you know, sort of the Jack FM, the you know the the multi-city blah format. Mm -hmm. You know that they just play sure. you know all the '90s. The hits and the, I. By the way, I r really resent them calling that oldies. '90s oldies. Yes, that you know if that's when you when your era of music becomes retro, you're going to feel away. Trust me. Mm. So anyway, um, <laughs> glad I, you got that out. <laughs> even for a while, I worked at a station that was owned by Clear Channel, yeah. and I was recording breaks into Lincoln from Omaha. Mm. And that's a job that somebody down there would have liked to have had. So we're hosts are, there are opportunities, but we're also facing all sorts of other challenges. Yeah. I, again, I, I think that's interesting. I never thought about that because for us, you're probably not going to 
you're probably going to be doing something else, you know. And mm-hmm. I think that's again what what this article. I don't know. It's it's a it's a weird balance because you don't want to you know take the 18 year old cellist at music school who's you know an incredible player, you know, uh, head and shoulders above the most, and you know, a lot of people are like that. So. We have to talk more about, and you know, as this article is pointing out, we have to talk more about diversifying the the skills because of the nature of the field. My thing is, why do we need to even center uh, the the performance path in the first place? I'll, I'll read here a little bit from the article. It says, "This does not mean we must abandon traditional career paths, but in addition to that, we must offer education that resonates with those alternatives." You know, it seems like something that won't and couldn't actually serve most of the student body is something that maybe we should consider abandoning or marginalizing or or not putting at the center. If one bassoonist you know, from a a bassoon studio has a chance at getting a full-time job at an orchestra. This is a, a, a curriculum that won't actually serve the vast majority of the student body. Why hang on to it? See, I, it's, I think that's the question. Yeah, but it's a little bit difficult to answer because the, I, I went, I taught at a public university and radio was a, a an elective mm-hmm. for most of them. So I was just trying to get them to be confident. Um, some of my students did go on to be uh, very uh, successful in the business. Shout out to Adrian Woodset. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying that you know I had any huge hand in his development, but I was one of his teachers. So it sounds like you argue that that confidence you were instilling can translate somewhere else, even if they don't get the job that they were yeah, looking for, end up in the field that they wanted to end up you in. Know, or being able to improvise, being able to uh, talk in front of a crowd. Mm-hmm. Those sorts of things. Those are skills that apply all over the place. So I think, you know, you're making the point that I sometimes make about the insidiousness of some of these programs because learning to play the oboe and really spending all your time making reads and, and practicing excerpts is not public speaking skills, you know, mm-hmm. is not, you know, the the sorts of things that you're right. talking about. And for me, it's it's hard to justify it if we're if if we're like I said before, not serving most of the folks in these systems undergoing these curriculums, we aren't serving them. So we have to talk about something different, something drastically different. That's that's my idea around it anyway. Didn't that start when you were at you in California? You said that there were classes that you took to help you with branding or with building a yeah. Uh, an online presence or what? Yeah, I think I must have been an unusual case because I, I, there were classes like that for both my undergrad and um, and master's degree. My website, GarrettMcQueen.com, is the result of the, I think, my undergraduate course. You know, the, the final project was you have to do some branding thing. So I just built my website, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, clearly that's still not happening in a lot of schools because a lot of artists don't do that. And then I don't know if websites are old fashioned anymore because folks don't give me a business card these days. They give me their Instagram and, right. you know, they the have a hundred thousand followers and all, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Mm. But anyway, I, I just, you know, I guess this conversation of um, helping folks explore more options, it just triggers something in me because I, I can, you know, w- without any sort of uh, ego, say that I made it. I won auditions. I made a living as a bassoonist. That's that's what I did. 
there are times when I think back and think about the fact that I did it by the skin of my teeth sometimes, you know, so if if people were not playing to my level, they just certainly didn't have a chance. And again, not bragging, just speaking the reality of things in most places that I existed musically, I was at the top because if I wasn't at the top in that space, how am I going to be the top at the top somewhere else? You know, anyway, all, all, all of that to say, I just, I feel sorry for, you know, the folks who uh, don't have the opportunity to learn more or to explore more or to think about more. You don't want to quash someone's desires and hopes and dreams of playing in an orchestra and doing that uh, traditional thing, but it's just not, the reality of most people who go on that path to end up in that position. But you said everybody that goes into that program has the idea that they will be the one. Why would they go into the program if they didn't think that, you know? Right. So shouldn't it be funded if people are, I mean, shouldn't it be there if people are going to pay to go through it? But then who benefits from it? If they don't actually end up in the orchestra seat, you know, who, so fine, I guess the, the school, the university won, they got that tuition, but the student didn't get what they paid for. How many biologists end up out knee deep in a pond uh, doing a salamander count? I mean, I guess that's a good question. <laughs> so this issue we're talking about in music, I guess, exists everywhere. You're saying mm -hmm. that there's, you know, not not all archaeologists end up uh, at Jurassic Park. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Discovering mammoths. Right. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That, that's what you're saying. I don't. They probably have a better chance from what you're saying about orchestras. They probably have a better chance yeah. of, of being an archaeologist than they do of a bassoon soloist. I mean, and the kids are so good and, these days. I, right. You know, it must be even harder than when I was going through the right. going through the fire. I imagine so. Another aspect of this you know, that this reminds me of is getting beyond wanting to even go on the traditional path because you see something bigger. I often <laughs> these days talk about graduating to arts administration. A lot of, you know, th there's been this idea among many people that folks in arts admin fell back into it because they were one of the ones who, you know, one of the most for whom, you know, winning the orchestra job just didn't work out, so you fall back into it. But I feel the opposite way. I, I feel like, you know, the skills that I've had to pull together that come together for me to have some level of success, you know, in, in the arts admin world is a testament of graduating up to it. Anyway, all of that to ask you, do you think about getting rid of the the, the concept of getting rid of the ego to take on opportunities in fields that are very impactful, maybe even more impactful than the more front-facing roles, um, but behind the scenes, that's what you know, not the front-facing thing. That's what I'm working for. That's what I'm working toward right now. And you're absolutely right. It's something that you graduate into, that you um, step up into. Because uh, you didn't uh, go to school to be behind the scenes. That's not what you you know, had dreams of doing when you were a, a no. whatever, a, a junior, a senior. No, and it wouldn't even have it wouldn't even have been in this format, and it wouldn't even have been with this focus. But it is something that you step up into because I think that while there are a lot of people out there that have natural leadership abilities, mm -hmm. instincts are something that you need to get through doing it. You know, and you've got to get in there and get aspects from a lot of different parts of the business to really get a feel for what it's going to be like to step into an administrator or leadership role like that. You have to get you have to get marinated in it and get all seasoned up before you step up, I think. So what you're saying is conductors needed to have played in an orchestra 
orchestra before they conduct an orchestra. Oh, okay. In, in so okay. many in so many terms, no. Oh, but I now see. this is interesting. <laughs> no shade, but shade, but no shade. Anyway, um, I think that's all from this article. Again, UniArts.fi. It's a it's a really you know important thing for us to think about. One of the other aspects that I'll let y'all dig into on your own time is just getting music school students to think about more of the world, you know, environmental issues, um, you know, uh, uh, desires and initiatives for peace around the world. You know, the, the world is bigger than you in your practice room mm-hmm. and, and those Beethoven excerpts, you know, mm-hmm. that that's another part of the thing. So, you know, I, I think diving into that could have benefit even beyond what we can imagine because it's always a struggle or it was always a struggle for me to talk to people um, through the radio world about politics and music when music was always political, but we have this idea that those things should be separate, you know? So if we, if we have more of that interdisciplinary uh, awareness going on with the musicians and what they learn in music school, that can eventually make it to the audiences. That can eventually make it to uh, the radio programming and the and the delivery of radio programming, what mm. the hosts are talking about. So anyway, be sure to check out this article and, I don't know, keep it real with the young musicians in your life. If, if I were mentoring a 16-year-old bassoonist, I would do my best. And, you know, I, I feel like I would be able to recognize if this were a person that I feel like would make it or or would at least have a chance because it's not a it's not a guarantee for anyone luck is just an ingredient and, s- and that is and then that's just the case but you know at the same time I, I do think there's something to being more realistic with with ourselves and with our students and 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 all of that and here we are in the arts here we are at the end of the accidental and and I finally get clarity I mean I see what you were saying at a conservatory if you've got a a student that isn't going to make it, that isn't even cutting it to be there, then yeah, they should be told, right? But I mean, I'm talking about radio students at a public university, 101, you know, but they're, I think, they're freshmen. But I think it's the same thing because at the conservatory, yes, every one of the 12 cellos at the Juilliard School cello studio are world renowned. When there's an opening in the New York Philharmonic, one of them is going to get the job, you know? So, you know, no matter what level we're talking about, I'm just talking about pure numbers. You could have in your radio course, 15 brilliant potential hosts. You could have a hundred shitty potential hosts. One job opening is one job opening at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I think that's really my point. When I went into broadcasting 101, I was terrible. <laughs> How you like me now? Well, I mean, still I, terrible. I I, I, yeah. I didn't go through any of those courses and still made it to the national. So, oh. uh huh. Like, so you must have really been bad, huh? <laughs> wow. Okay. Also, now you're quiet. Okay. No, it's not enough. <laughs> I come over here and do this. I got to get my balls broken too. I'm just messing with you. All right, y'all go check out that uh, accidental little be in the description. We're going to get into the second movement here since you know we're recording this on Day of the Dead with one of those. Classics. This is Carmen Gott's uh, rendition of La Llorona to get us into the second movement here. Aunque la vida me cuesta 
Carmen Gott. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. G-O-E-T-T, singing La Llorona. What a beautiful voice and what beautiful mm -hmm. uh, uh, instrumental Ling, instrumental ling, but going behind Very that. Good. Are you, uh, have you long been familiar with Dia de los Muertos? Is, is that something that's been in your periphery for long? It's relatively new for me. No, uh, here and there, but not with regularity, should I say. Yeah. But um, I worked on a story for work and had to help somebody write a story about it. So I had only recently became more immersed. Yeah. I, when I moved to Los Angeles, that was the first time I had ever heard of it. There were street festivals and stuff going right. on on, on uh, October 30th. And I don't know, I, I thought it was cool. I, I guess I had seen the 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 skull makeup that people wear that I guess they mm -hmm. lifted from, from Dia de los Muertos. But I don't know, I've, I've enjoyed uh, getting to, you know, have some familiarity with what an ofrenda is, by the way, and honoring uh, lost loved ones, the importance of remembering them and and remembering their uh, spirit and all of that stuff. I, I think it's it's really beautiful. And uh, of course, the movie Coco that I hope you'll watch. It's a Disney film, but I, I think it's great. That that brought it uh, to a, a lot of people's fears as well. So knowing, you know, so we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to talk about some music we've been listening to. So knowing now in my life that Dia de los Muertos is a thing, the experience I had last night makes more sense than it would otherwise. So, so. Dell and I <clears throat> get home from one of uh, his colleagues, a uh, little Halloween gathering, and somewhere in the neighborhood, there is some beautiful trumpet playing happening. And then as I listen a little closer, I'm hearing what sounds like a guitar, and then of course now singers are involved, and mm -hmm. it's it's really incredible. And you know, it sounds exactly like what I would call mariachi. And, you know, again, if I didn't know that Dia de los Muertos was a thing, I, I would be a little bit confused. But I thought it was just such an incredible experience to, you know, hear that beautiful. There were strings that I heard, you know, just hearing this beautiful ensemble in my own neighborhood, just the, the music in the air and how that really affirms what we're talking about here on this podcast. That's classical music. It's not Western European classical music, but that's classical music tied to a classic American tradition, you know, that word America as far as the Americas and mm -hmm. you know so anyway thinking about that and getting to hear some uh, Dia de los Muertos music live and in the moment in my neighborhood uh, got me going down a rabbit hole of other sorts of uh, Mexican tunes Mexican uh, classical music that you know is connected to that holiday so on one of these playlists I got to a tune called El Pijuquito by uh, an ensemble here listed as Trio Chicontebec. So just a little bit about uh, this trio. It, it wasn't uh, easy to find uh, information about him, uh, but I found a website here that says a man named uh, Rolando Hernandez, known as Quesho, uh, founded uh, the group, this this trio, um, and by trade was a fiddle virtuoso and a fiddle teacher. So he was so good at, at teaching the fiddle that people would come to him for lessons and and uh, to, to learn this Mexican tradition. And he ended up founding uh, a group that's, again, known as Trio Chicontepec. It's named after the uh, part of the region that they come from. And uh, the sound of this music, of course, is very idiomatic of what most people would think about mariachi music or Mexican music. But the treatment of the vocals, I think, is just so free and so entertaining. I've been listening to it over and over again and wanted to share it here with y'all today. Hey, 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 hey. Oh, oh. 
yo canto el bejuco por la región de Chicón, por la región de Chicón, cuando yo canto el bejuco, al cantar no me embrujo, les hago la aclaración, les hago la aclaración, porque les canto con gusto. You know that that Mozart we listened to at the beginning of the opus. You know that they say that's for soprano coloratura. You know mm-hmm. coloratura being how you can flip and swing your voice. That is coloratura. What we just heard right there. Mm. <laughs> it's just so free and so happy and joyful. And again, you know, Dia de los Muertos. We're thinking about the Day of the Dead and and honoring uh, folks who have passed along. But there's not sadness in that. There's joy and happiness. It's one of the great things about. Uh, Dia de los Muertos is the the fact that it gives you n- not so much of the sadness and the grief. Mm-hmm. You know, there there is more celebration, and it's and it's remembrances. The uh, the idea that this person has passed, but they'll come back. Yeah, and it's also a holiday that varies wildly on depending depending where you are in Mexico. Some traditions exist right. in some places that don't in others. Right. You know, yes. Yeah, a very fu- diverse landscape. Yeah. The, the foods are different. The the music is different. There's one uh, region, uh, Central uh, Mexico, is on like a flight path for monarch butterflies. Mm. So this time of year. Monarchs are all over the place, sure, you know, sure. and and so there's a spirituality assigned to that. It's 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 a great way to introduce, I think, in particular, young people into death and dying. And and on top of all of that, there's brilliant music mm. to go with it. So you know, it's uh, I live here here on uh, on the, on the west side of St. Paul, where you know the the Latine history is very strong the uh, the community here is very strong and I've recently learned as of just a few days ago in fact that Dia de los Muertos is a multi day sort of celebration just like mm. Kwanzaa is a multi day mm-hmm. so I'm looking forward to engaging the community and being around uh, the neighborhood and seeing what people are doing and hopefully hearing some more really great mariachi music and i don't even know if that's an appropriate term i need to do my homework but or, or a, uh, a term that's uh, more specific than not or less specific yeah. than we think of anyway i love the aesthetic i love the happiness of it and i love that i uh through you know uh experiencing this in the moment in my neighborhood discovering for myself el bejuquito by trio chico tepec here's a little bit of the closer of this song to Add a little bit more to it. Add a more, a little more salsa to the conversation. Piensas que no sé mi amor, sí, porque me ves chiquito. Yo soy como el bejuquito, naciendo y echando flor, naciendo y echando flor. Yo soy como el bejuquito. If if there's anyone in the radio programming world who maybe wants a a, a beginner's uh, album or I don't know something that is a crossover between that aesthetic and the orchestral aesthetic, I, I'm pretty sure it was the Cincinnati Pops. If it's not, or maybe it was the Boston Pops. Anyway, it's an album called the Latin Album. I used to play it all the time down at WUOT. Mm-hmm. You know when <laughs> I used to love when May Fourth 
was a Friday because we have Star Wars and Cinco de Mayo, you know, so making those, <laughs> uh-huh. those sorts of crossovers. Anyway, you have the Latin album out there. Uh, of course, you know, we were talking about Dudamel last week. Dudamel has, you know, done a, a lot as far as mixing that aesthetic into the orchestral sounds. Um, I'm thinking about uh, the composer Juan Pablo Contreras, who's been on Triloquy and uh, recently actually won a, a really big uh, uh, arts prize. Anyway, I feel like this aesthetic is one that as much as we talk about jazz and blues as American classical, this is very much that as well, at least from my perspective. And every opportunity we have to bring it into the conversation of classical music, I think um, we should. So that's where my mind and my spirit, my spirits have been on this Dia de los Muertos. Hope everyone is having a con- continued wonderful holiday mm. for the season. All right. What you got this week? I'm bringing in a band called Los Lobos. You probably never heard of this band, have you? I haven't, unfortunately. They've been around since 1973, and I read in an interview once that if you had a quinceañera or a wedding in East Los Angeles in the early 80s, they probably played. Okay. <laughs> they probably <laughs> sure. played the party. But I think they're probably one of the more underrated bands that really just have so much versatility and a wide uh, appeal mainly because they were the band for the uh, soundtrack for La Bamba. Okay, okay. And yeah, that was not Lou Diamond Phillips singing. That was the the front man for Los Lobos. Don't know who Lou Diamond is either. <laughs> oh my God. Go on. I can see the Go liver on. spots showing up on my hands. But anyway, um, they banded together um, playing traditional Mexican music, but Mm. they also have uh, very much of a blues and a blues rock influence that they uh, use to great effect. But the album that I wanted to bring in was probably one of the first cassettes I ever had. Hmm. It came out in 1987 called By the Light of the Moon. And the every single track on it really speaks to the real the the way that they see the way America is, that there are moments that you can see through to what the ideal is. And we were talking last week about what is that one day? Sure. What is the one day we reach when you feel like everything will be complete? Mm-hmm. You know, they sing about all that that ideal, but also all of the dirty edges and the rough edges mm-hmm. all around it. But uh, I was digging uh, around the lake several days. I was digging just the, the first track alone. Right from the first track, it's called One Time, One Night. Yeah. 
And I think this really proves the diversity within marginalized communities because that is not an aesthetic that I would expect to hear from a group called Los Lobos. It sounds very um, southern to me. Very, I, I guess Mexico is even more south than you know, but very southeastern United mm. States. Very twangy very I, w- I would even use the word country even if that's not the appropriate term interesting for me to hear this that's that's great wow they also have uh, their traditional albums out and of course the soundtrack from la bamba if you really want to rock out pull up a track called the viking and turn it up i'm sure the folks here in minnesota would really love that so again <laughs> one time one night what is it about it that sort of juices you you have a very uh eclectic palette this specifically this sounds like one of those remember back when i said if i heard a a, a twangy guitar it sounds like er Mm. Mm you know what 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 is it about this music what what's what heartstring is being pulled when you hear that sort of aesthetic or is it the story of the band that you connect to or what is it a little bit of both but also um just this album was uh, when I when I got it, I was at a very impressionable spot in my uh, in my musical development mm-hmm. or my taste, my development of taste. Um, there's something about the train feel that it gets. It feels um, like it has a motor, like it's perpetual. Los Lobos, shout out to them. Thanks for letting me go on. Yeah, <laughs> well, um, I'm giving y'all another one, two, three punch. This week in the third movement, I uh, uh, have back Rocky Lee and Paige, hosts of the SCORE podcast from Minnesota Opera, um, sharing with y'all this week, part two of our conversation, where we get in this week. Uh, Lee is talking about the necessity to serve a more diverse population, not just something that can be done or should be done, but something that must be done. Again, we're talking about you know, Los Lobos and that sort of more country aesthetic being aligned with Mexican history and, and Mexican communities in Southern California. So, you know, the, the diversity of the different communities is there. And as those communities grow, so does the need for so-called classical institutions to serve each and every one of those communities as they are and how they come to the space. So that's where the uh, conversation gets kicked off. And we're going to get into uh, this conversation with another track from the score as brought by the Fugees. Did you, did you happen to listen to any more of of the score since last week we were kind of talking about a couple of the tracks i went back i i I put on the vinyl and you know was reminded of this sort of american classical music and yeah i mentioned to you that i'm not familiar much beyond what the hits were yeah so toward the end of the album i I have the vinyl and the one i have anyway it's uh four-sided so on that fourth side on that d side you have some of those tracks that you know and you would recognize but they don't get you know, the shine and the attention mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. some of the the singles got. So I want to uh, share one of those, at least what I would consider one of those uh, from the album to get us into the third movement this week. It's actually the track titled The Score. We get Wyclef uh, in the opening here, giving us the magic. And we have Lee jumping us into the conversation between myself, Lee, Rocky, and Paige with his own magic. Hope y'all enjoy here. Last time I settled the score, rip to the rum, rum to the rip, rip, single. But the times I come and triple, with the heat into your head, now you dead. Why left don't give a ooh if you're dead. Let me attack just like a black hat. You in the wrong neighborhood, check your map. 
You gotta go for backup to do what you gotta do So you'll be back with Francie You traitor in your crew is my fuhi He put poison in my tea and killed the toe But I'll be back with Centipede I'm on some new technique, drunk in bamboo I'm taking on crews, what? Competition stimulation for the rap man Losers, check the tutors as I'm sucking on your girl hooters Don't play macho cause you got the gun so Cause if you gotta reload man. The demographic piece is what I sit with, right? And I think if you were sitting with this reality, if you are under the age of 18 and you are um, a person of the global majority, you are absolutely in the majority right now in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. There are many, many more people of color that are going to exist in this country um, in our overall populace than I think most people have processed even those of us who are people of color. And this 2042 is when we're going to see that shift, right? That's coming really, really soon. So I think part of where I sit with this is that the time for opera to have started thinking about what it means to be in service of a much more diverse population was what like 1975 right like we should have been thinking about this a very long time ago and now we're just in a different moment and i think if we don't start anticipating what that means there will simply not be enough people in our current target demographic to go around to sustain most opera companies and the choice that we're going to have is whether or not we are comfortable with this art form and all of its potential disappearing so I think, you know, there are going to be moments where we may have to say there are some people who have been longtime subscribers who may not like where this is trending, but we also have to respond to the fact that there are these people who are 15, 18, 25, 40 years old, who we are going to need to support the art form and we have to bring them in kind of immediately, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it sounds like it's a, a very harsh statement to say, you know, we're, we're just comfortable leaving them behind. But I think there is, it's like the idea of, we can't all be using rotary phones just because some of our grandparents don't really want to get on cell phones right now, mm -hmm. right? Like that that's mm -hmm. actually not the answer. So that's kind of how I sit. And I, I think of some of the function that, certainly that I have at the company and, and the other uh, nine people on our team have is push push, right? We just have to push people towards the understanding that the ground under opera companies shifted a long time ago. We chose not to respond, and now we're in a very different moment. And Rocky, not to com completely trample on your, you know, approach or your point of view, but it just, what, what, what always, what it always boils down to me is there are a group of people, a community of people for whom we are uncomfortable leaving behind. And then there are communities of people who we, in essence, are comfortable leaving behind mm -hmm. for their sake. That, that's the, that's the dissonance that I always find myself in, in that, in that conversation. Yeah, I mean, and absolutely. And I don't mean to make it sound like I'm trying to coddle anyone, because that's absolutely not what I am trying to say at all. Because they will drag you. This audience will drag you. No, 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 no. no. That is not. <laughs> no, I mean, and I, I, I started out, you know, saying just kind of, you know, 
to 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 use your words fuck them (laughs) 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 you know and and that really is kind of where i usually tend to sit i think leon page no but i do feel as though if there is a way that we can reach out to those folks um i think you know, we should certainly at least try, but recognizing that, yeah, to Lee's point, you know, at a certain point, like, you know, we're all just going to have to to upgrade to iPhones. We can't just, <laughs> we can't be using these rotary phones anymore. And especially if we as an, as a company, as an industry, if we want to survive, you know, millennials and, and Gen Z are you know the you look at the the demographics you look at the data you know it's the they're the first generations that are becoming more liberal as they're getting older and they Mm -hmm. tend to you know spend money with companies that align with their values and so what we have to do is we just have to be out and proud and loud with who we are and what we stand for and you know like i said there are just going to be people who are just not down with that and we can't sit here and like, you know, beg and plead for those people. Like, please don't be racist anymore. We promise we'll be good. <laughs> like, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm just trying to say is that like, if we can have a conversation with those folks and we can, you know, get them to come in to the, to the opera house and see what we're doing, hopefully it would change their minds. But, you know, if it doesn't. Right, because I will never be good, so I can't make that promise. It's no. never <laughs> so, Paige, among the you know world of initiatives that have been put out there to connect uh, with more uh, diverse audience members, uh, is this podcast? Is the score is the the podcast that you uh, that that you help lead? Talk a little bit about the development of the score, and I'm really curious about how it's been engaged internally. I mean, I I guess you don't need to read any memos, but is the idea of a podcast hosted by three black people something that, you know, Minnesota Opera jumped right on? Or was there some convincing that had to happen? (laughs) You know, it's funny. I think when we first started talking about the podcast, I had thrown it out there. And it's one of those things that you throw out there and you're not like 100% serious. But then the other people in the room are like, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, oh, okay. well, yeah, I guess it's a thing now. And I know for me, I was, I think, noticing like part of the dynamic, even as you all were talking about like younger folks. I, one thing I think about is how often the news cycle moves and changes and how quickly and the things you want to talk about. And it feels like they're gone (laughs) a week later. um, I like the idea of a podcast where, you know, we could talk more, we could have more of those conversations that maybe don't fit into our, don't fit into our show schedule or don't fit into the marketing or that's not what our blog is talking about focused on right now or those kinds of things but that are definitely important to you know the tone of the industry overall getting to comment on on what we're seeing and I know I really wanted to talk more with the amazing artists and administrators that I was encountering who were folks of color, who were queer and trans, who 
were disabled, who just had different perspectives, who have been here, who have, I feel like, always been here within opera, but we don't get to hear as much about our individual stories. So that's definitely definitely part of where I was starting with. And I think I think the response has been pretty positive. I mean, I think often, especially people of color, when you propose the new idea at a job, you're used to like jumping through hoops and stuff and <laughs> it being vetted <laughs> once, twice, three times. But everyone was very open. And I think especially once they heard like the first one or two episodes I w- we were met with excitement from our colleagues of like wondering what w- what was going to come next of just, you know, compliments, <laughs> so many compliments and people telling us they were subscribed. And the funny thing about recording a podcast is sometimes you record it and you forget that it's out there in the world until someone <laughs> brings it up in your conversation <laughs> and you're like, oh, right, I did say that thing. Like, yeah, yeah. So I- I'm actually I'm really grateful for for how folks responded and how we were encouraged to 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 run with it. I wonder if you'll speak more to the marketing piece that you you briefly mentioned. I mean, if Minnesota Opera is putting on a show and at intermission or after uh, after the opera, there's going to be a soul food buffet. Okay, I'll be there, <laughs> but I need to know that it's it's there. You know, there has to be a means of of letting me know. I only use that you know as an analogy because I think there is a lot of. Uh, culture and perspective in the score that isn't always mirrored or reflected on the stage or, you know, even in the way that the organization markets its offering. So how does the score fit into all of those conversations of marketing and getting this media in front of the right people, at least the option to engage the media in front of the right people? Yeah, I'm gonna speak a little to that. And then I'd love to hear Rocky and Lee's perspective and people who are currently who are currently there, you know, um, I say, I what I observed happening with the score was people being even increasingly interested, I think, in the things that we did have on stage or do have on stage that are speaking to something else than like, white dominant culture Mm -hmm. so i think it was people becoming increasingly interested in the interview with the one asian american singer who was on the podcast and maybe they're talking about that more or they're getting to hear from that artist who maybe was in one of those typical a operas that we talked about Uh, you know nothing new that we haven't heard before but now they're getting to hear that person's perspective as the artist creating it they get to hear like okay well what do you think actually about seeing more people of color in this what do you think about madam butterfly what do you think about how many times porgy and Bess has been the one black opera programmed and so i think we talk about those things and it helps to open things up with i think just with ourselves on the podcast i'm always learning from people um definitely within the company i know while i was there like it did spark conversations Mm with our colleagues, with our colleagues at the opera, with people working maybe outside of the company, but that are closer all the time. Folks would say, you you said that thing, or you had that guest on the score that made me think of things differently. And I think maybe in the future, we want to do this, or we want to do that differently. Um, 
So I think sometimes it is like that jumping point that maybe you don't see the thing that we're talking about yet, or you don't see the changes that we express that we'd like to see on the show yet. But in a way, we kind of use the show as a springboard sometimes, (laughs) or at least I think I do. Sometimes that is the springboard. Sometimes that's the thing that, you know, helps us see more of what we want to what we want to see out there on the stage. So let me jump to the VP of impact then. Is it as simple as putting the logo for the score podcast on the newsletter and the email? (laughs) email How, how are people getting to this or what are the ideas of how people can get to, to this media that Minnesota opera is producing? So I think it's important to understand what the relationship between the score and Minnesota Opera is because we're not a project of the marketing department. The score is independently owned by Paige, Rocky and me and licensed to the company. So what that means is that we are making decisions about what we would like to talk about, um, which is why it's not you know, the score every week is is focusing on what Minnesota Opera is producing. We're thinking about this as an opportunity to begin a conversation, three Black queer people, to talk to a group of people who we feel like are not always brought into conversations about the art form, right? And as a part of that, we take a really broad look um, at the art form. So we we talk about many other social and cultural phenomena. Um, there's some weeks that we don't really mention opera or classical music whatsoever, mm-hmm. but we're thinking about what does it take to open the space to people on on the, the traditional opera side, as well as those who have not been brought in, and then reframe what this relationship can be. And like any relationship, I think we try to focus on telling the truth, um, really engaging our audience with things that we think are interesting or funny or upsetting or confusing. And and then also really trying to build a longer term rapport that isn't just transactional, like, hey, we're going to talk to you about Edward Tulane and hope you come to it. Instead, we're going to talk to you about the kinds of things that we talk about at work, the kinds of things that we talk about when we're just the three of us by ourselves and try to bring you into this space. And then if you find that Minnesota Opera is for you, then great, come, enjoy it, love it. If not, then engage with us here and and maybe find your way to some of these other things that we talk about too. Yeah, it's great to know and understand. I appreciate that clarity as far as the, you know, I guess, legal relationships between (laughs) the opera. Uh, Rocky, with with everything that Lee just said considered, is there no pressure to shine a more positive light or or lean a little bit more toward, uh, you know, inspiring people to engage Minnesota opera as opposed to, you know, being critical of it? Do you do you do you not feel that there's a balance there, some sort of dance you have to do? Or as soon as you turn on the, the microphones for the score, you feel completely free to offer whatever you feel like offering? You know, I think for the most part, um, during this whole journey, I think there have been just a one or two situations where we perhaps got a little too spicy. Got called to the principal's um, office. Yeah, we got called to the principal's <laughs> office. <laughs> and, you know, it was like, well, maybe we shouldn't talk directly about that person or that situation. Um, but that really only happened, I think, once or twice, unless I'm misremembering something. And it was very early on during our run. Um, so for the past year and a half, really, it has been 
um, us turning on the microphones and just being our full queer black authentic selves um because i just i don't think the show would work any other way mm-hmm. and especially since we are licensing the show you know it's it's ours so you know you're not going to tell me that like i can't sit here and talk about how i actually feel about <laughs> you know queen elizabeth dying or something like that <laughs> like i'm sitting here and i'm having a conversation with my two colleagues and friends and we're actually trying to build trust ultimately with our audience. And so that means being vulnerable, being open, being really honest and true about the way that we feel about things. And sometimes we don't agree. Sometimes we don't feel the way about a thing that people might expect us to feel. Um, And, you know, people might write us letters or give us a bad review (laughs) um, about that. But one of the things that has been really nice is we have been sort of given this freedom to just sort of express ourselves the way that we want to express ourselves. And, you know, as as good, <laughs> as, as freeing as that is, sometimes it is a little bit scary because mm. you do sometimes feel like you're up on that tightrope and that <laughs> feeling of like, am I going to get called to the, the, you know, the, the, um, the principal's office. And we've, we, have had lots of conversations where it's like we will go in on something like there's one time we i mean we went in on lena waith and that show <laughs> that horror show <laughs> <laughs> the three of us just went in and then we just we stopped recording and we were like was that too spicy oh, <laughs> let's let's take the weekend and think about if that was too spicy and uh-huh. then we came back on monday and was like no no, that's how we feel. So, you know, if we get in trouble, we get in trouble and that's fine. <laughs> so Paige and building these relationships and establishing the, this trust on a broader level, on a systemic level, what's, what do you see as the role of the so-called outsider as the person who's not in the organization, but <laughs> has impact for the organization? It, it seems from my perspective, you feel the pressure to be even, you know, uh, more trill, if I may use that word, <laughs> even, even more higher because, you know, that th- th- that's not your principle. That's their principle, right? You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That is very real. There, there was a part of me that was just like, "Oh yeah, am I, am I off the, am I off the hook now? Does this mean I can just while out?" But no, not it, not at all. I feel like, <laughs> if anything, I am able to zoom out in a in a different way more uh, now that you know. The opera isn't my isn't my everyday work. And I think I see the connections between like the larger like cultural and societal dynamics like a little a little differently now. Mm-hmm. Um and if anything, like I can I can definitely understand like wanting to protect Minnesota opera's relationships. Um and at the same time, I don't like tiptoeing around stuff. I don't yeah. like tiptoeing around yeah. stuff. Yeah. And I know, I know my co-hosts. I know Lee and Rocky <laughs> don't either. <laughs> I know they do not. <laughs> and so I would say at the at the most, at the most, you know, with some topics I, I know to approach diplomatically, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. still honestly. You know, I think I'm pretty good at doing that dance between <laughs> <laughs> yep. between diplomacy and keeping it real. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm getting better at that dance myself. So among the many things that, you know, folks have been talking about, discussing, debating in opera is skin darkening makeup. And I've made a point to, mm-hmm. you know, keep this subject, this idea going on the Triloquy podcast with guests, you know, week after week. I've had some great people to discuss this with. Karen Slack has, you know, an opinion that's slightly different than Lemmy Pulliam, who has, you know, a very interesting <laughs> opinion. You know, without continuing the, you know, the the pattern of just digging in what we believe on an issue like this and, and really being unchanging. Lee, I wonder if you think there is a way to move the conversation forward. I'm never going to think it's okay to use skin darkening makeup. There are people of color even who don't see that as an issue. What's what was the next step? What's the way forward? I think if you find yourself in a situation where you need to alter the person's race for them to be able to execute a role, then you have not cast the role properly, right? Mm-hmm. Or you have not formulated a, on what the piece is, right? And I, I think with, there are probably some pieces we just don't need to do right now. Um, and who knows where we will be as a society in 15 years, and we may be thinking very differently about certain things racially. But I I am completely 100% against the idea of blackface or yellowface. I think it's incredibly deleterious. I think it really hurts kids it confuses lots of things and it's it's damaging to us as a society and i don't see the point Mm -hmm. with it right um and i guess just as a brief addendum i i think with certain works you should be able to have enough imagination right there's already this huge suspension of disbelief i mean people are are singing for three hours for god's sake right so like there there is a way that i think with some works, if you can't imagine or follow what's happening without those kinds of cues, that is a problem in and of itself. But I think generally there are works that are really damaging to people. There is a list of them. It's not, and it's also not hard to figure out what they are. And it's okay for us to say, we don't need to engage with this right now. No one is going to be hurt if we stop producing Madama Butterfly for for 10 years. Like that, that is actually not going to hurt us. It Mm -hmm. may hurt us to continue to produce it, especially in the ways that we have, right? So I think we just, it, it shouldn't take a ton of thought to see why this is a problem and why it's okay for us to abandon this very antiquated practice yeah and and rocky i'm you know before i ask this i want to frame it i'm you know this isn't about again getting tea on minnesota opera specifically as much as it's about helping folks understand how these conversations manifest i mean do you feel like in in your uh edi role do you feel like you have the room and the space to actually impact the programming decisions that come from these conversations. We can we can talk about the nuances of things and the diversity of, of thought. Have you seen shows shelved or reconsidered or altered for the sake of these conversations? Is that a real thing that's happening? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, absolutely. Um, you know, I think it was, I can't remember the year, it's either 2018 or 2019. And there was talk um, among 
the executives and the artistic department about doing um, a production of Madam Butterfly. And I came through and I said, y'all, I don't think we're ready for that. (laughs) (laughs) And the diplomatic way of doing that. (laughs) Yes, yes, I was as diplomatic as possible, um, but made it very clear that I just don't think that the organization is in a place to be ready to do that and, you know, argued my case. And, um, you know, ultimately we didn't end up doing that show. Um, And so I think what's really... Um, been heartening about the last couple of years is that, you know, I think, you know, there's the, the, you know, that viral tweet that's like, oh, like, you know, you know, it's 2022 and you've hardly touched your 2020 diversity yeah. initiatives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, I don't think there's ever going to be a moment where like we're hanging up the mission accomplished banner and being like, that's it. Like, equitable opera 24 7 all the time (laughs) Uh, um but you know what's really lovely is that we are in a place where even if everything that i'm suggesting or lee is suggesting because lee also like has a huge say in in the programming um and is a huge part of those conversations as well even if we don't always get our way at least we are in the conversation um and are like and that's what you know inclusion is to be a part of you know the conversation feel like your opinion actually matters and can actually change things um but i think more often than not and i think that's part of what this show is all about is us getting our thoughts and our opinions out there and people are listening and people are and and we are seeing changes in the organization as a result. Paige, what are some of the other issues that come to mind uh, that require some of our continued attention, our continued conversations? We can talk about blackface, uh, yellowface, all of those things. I've also engaged singers about the issues uh, surrounding fat phobia and body politics. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk mm-hmm. about costuming, we can, you know, talk about lighting and all of those things. Are there issues that really come to the front of your mind that, you know, we need to be careful not to put in the passenger seat for too long, considering how much we pay attention to the issue of race in opera. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad you mentioned fat phobia. I, I think that one and colorism, I especially see um, just as someone who is in a black femme body, those are often like, if I had to name a big two <laughs> uh, or a big three, rather, it's probably fat phobia, colorism, misogyny that often impact the subtle dynamics even of everything from casting to your marketing to your everything, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I also see, um, I think, issues of gender coming to the forefront more and like I just look forward to us having more and more nuanced uh more and more nuanced perspectives on it I mean of course there's as you mentioned earlier like the way that the canon treats women just women's stories um we also live in a reality where I think we talk about next generation more most youth most youth identify as not straight Hmm. Uh, and a lot of youth identify also as not 
cisgender. That means identifying with the gender that they were assigned at birth. I think issues of gender and sexuality, uh, opera has a lot of a lot of catching up to do, which is which is funny because as a theater person and as a queer theater person, like I see anything that involves theater, like there's so many potentials. Come on, and we know that we're all always have been all over the place when it comes to everything from the singing to the orchestra to the costumes to the direction. Like we've always been there, so. Um, I think we'll see more of our stories, you know, coming to the coming to the forefront, especially in the next generation. Like the kids, the kids are queer and they are, they are not going to take trans, it. Yeah, and they're not going to take it. <laughs> no, they're not going to take not. it. Yeah. <laughs> Rocky, it seems like, you know, one of the difficult things that just holds these systems in place is the uh, relationship between physical bodies and gender or physical bodies and you know for example i would love to see you know uh l let's go with the magic flute where you know both of the both of the leads are queer women let, let's just say um there aren't a lot of women who can sing tamino's notes you know so are, at this point are we talking about really digging in and and changing the literature or, you know, skating those lines just to make sure we have the so-called male and so-called uh, female voice intervals as were created by Mozart. How do we how do we move forward without changing some of the repertoire? It seems like that's that's what just has to happen. That's what's coming down the pipeline. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think Lee actually can answer this question a lot better than I can, um, because right now we are working on um, in our creative development education programs, um, really working on um, a system to um, degender opera mm. and to really take opera out. Because as Paige was mentioning, the majority of youth are not identifying as cisgender or heterosexual. So how do we create a space for those kids who are coming into our education programs to feel like opera is something that is for them, something that they can be a part of. Um, but I don't know, Lee, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, I will say, I think this is where clearly we as a society are moving, right? So part of what we're interested in doing with our youth education programs is, is creating the the knowledge and the skills so that people can shift the machinery to match where society is going. Because again, I think that's very much going to speak to the the art form's long-term viability. And then I think also another part of that is really being thoughtful about our commissioning power, right? Mm. I think if we're really interested in telling stories and telling stories in ways that, that feel um, vibrant and, and strike people as authentic, we are going to have to bring in new people to write them and write them in different ways and, and to take on what that degendering looks like also in the scores themselves, right? So this isn't always about shifting around, you know, something that was written 250 years ago and instead also understanding there's a way that we can and should be telling these stories responsibly right now, which, in, which means asking new people to write new things. So I know that both and is the best way, I'll, I'll say the, the best way to, to approach things moving forward. With that being said, Lee, do you feel like we're talking more about uh, creating and platforming new works or taking the old works and making them fit, kind of to loop us back to one of our earlier mm -hmm. conversations? 
I mean, I think it's going to be both, right? And I, I think where this gets complicated is that there isn't, because the audience itself is diverse and we're talking about responding to a diverse audience, there are going to be different things audiences want to see. There are going to be some folks who are really going to want to see, I want to see, you know, a completely degendered magic flute or La Boheme or Tosca. And then there are going to be a lot of other people who are like, hey, I would love to see a, a an opera about a West Indian family in New York City in the early 1920s negotiating that moment, right? And I, I would love to see that opera. Please, somebody write it. <laughs> so like, I, I think there has to be the space for both. Opera is a generative art form. So the idea that we're never going to revisit things that have been produced for decades isn't realistic. There, there are too many people who are invested in that. But the idea that we can move forward without introducing new stories that reflect the sensibilities, the interests, the, the histories of, of other groups of people is also not healthy. Yeah, yeah, because I have ideas for the three ladies. If we're talking about an ungendered magic flute, there there are some things that I, I have envisioned for sure. And that could definitely, you know, bring in different cultures and ideas and just, you know, drum up some some excitement. I also really believe in, you know, the opera written by the the black queer woman at the same time. So it, I think at the end of the day, I can agree that it's a, a balancing act and ultimately a, a, a both and. Uh, Paige, as we wrap up here how can folks uh learn more about the score how can they support the show what do you need from the people to keep that thing going yes 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 well you can check us out if you want to see all our episodes and stuff and all our tea right there you can go to mnopera.org slash the score <laughs> uh there you will be able to see our episode page but also you can catch us just like any podcast listening device app that you have we're on apple podcasts we're on spotify uh the score minnesota opera there are unfortunately other podcasts named the score <laughs> i tell people look up One the score two. minnesota <laughs> opera and you'll get exactly what you're looking for <laughs> and the artwork's unmistakable so you'll know it <laughs> don't see the fuji's album cover it's the wrong one <laughs> rocky what can uh, folks look forward to or how can folks learn more about what's happening at Minnesota Opera? Maybe stuff that, you know, someone like me might care about. Oh, yeah. I mean, go check out mnopera.org. Um, you know, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all those places at mnopera. And um, yeah, check out, I guess, Edward Tulane when it opens on August, October 8th. Okay. Great, great. And then, uh, Lee, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let you have the final word here. You live at the intersection of many things, many cultures, many expressions of art. You know, I'll, you know you're uh, a newly cemented, uh, a newly minted board member on ACF. Uh, you know, shout out to, to, to them and congrats to you for that. You know, you're, you're doing so much and you have your fingers in, in so many different pots. Is opera generally, not specifically Minnesota opera, but the art form of opera, does it have unique positionality in helping us unite? We're becoming a, a more divisive population politically, spiritually, you know, every everything in between. Does opera have some of those keys? Does opera have, have some of those remedies? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, art is a thing that unites all of us, and opera has a unique ability to tell 
huge emotional stories in a way that we get a bit more interiority than we do in some other art forms, right? There's a way that the aria can allow you to experience someone's thoughts and emotions and hopes and dreams in a very nuanced, personal way, while at the same time at a level of volume over 40 pieces in the orchestra that you don't always get. And I think the more we can bring in people into the opera as creators, as thought partners, and as audience members who are demanding to have their own experiences shared in this medium, I think the more we're going to be able to do to make opera into something much, much more democratic than what it is right now. The tail end there of the overture to Mozart's Don Giovanni. A lot of Mozart, this opus, more than there's probably ever been, at least for a long time. Anyway, I wanted to hear a little bit of that because that's one of the operas uh, that Minnesota Opera has coming up. That's coming up in May. So if you want to see, you know, one of the tried and true classics by Minnesota Opera, we're talking about growth. I'm talking about folks going to see one of one of the folks from the canon, one of the things. So you can uh, check out uh, information on that uh, at mnopera.org. Org. Do you happen to know the story of this opera, Don Giovanni? No, I don't. So it's a, an opera, long story short, about uh, a playboy who is going around all over Europe and all these women are, the are getting story. upset. Yeah, and mm. you know, and he gets his due at, at the end uh, of it all. So with that being the story, despite the fact that it's Mozart, is there a version, <laughs> some staging or some approach that would interest you we have a story about you know a playboy who gets his due is that mm. <laughs> or you want the playboy to get away that's the story you want to see <laughs> why put that on me <laughs> anyway i'm asking there's some way for that sort of thing that sort of story to be staged to catch your interest to get your hundred dollars i you feel said you have a hundred dollars for the opera i feel assaulted <laughs> uh i don't know there's plenty of uh politicians that have gotten caught with their hand in the cookie jar. So if it was the the story, but you know, Don Giovanni is obviously dressed as insert politician or insert celebrity. Clearly. That, that's the sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm I'm really trying to hold your feet to the fire. That's going to get you a hundred dollars because remember you said you have a hundred dollars to to go see you an asked, opera. You asked if there was a staging that would get it. Right. Not not does the opera get it outright. Right. No. No. Exactly. Because we know the opera outright does not. So now we're talking about what what is the spectacle you know that's going to be tied to this story to get you into the into the seat. So you're saying mm. there is something that they can do, huh? <laughs> you're, you're saying it's possible. Uh, you didn't give me that option. So uh, holding my feet to the fire, yeah, they're going. There, there would be some version of that that would get me to pay a hundred dollars. Okay. Well, let's see what Minnesota Opera comes up with in May, mm. and maybe we'll go and see. You know, Scott Scott got a hundred dollars, and we'll go see Minnesota Opera's rendition of Don Giovanni. Can so we get we'll a see. ticket for that? Yeah, yeah, we can definitely get a ticket from that. I'm not sure where we'll sit. You know, that's that's the thing about it because the boxes, I think they cost a little bit more than that. Uh, oh, I'm know. not going to sit in a box. No, see, but see, I like to sit high because I need to see the orchestra as well. Mm. <laughs> I need to see, but I don't know. Anyway, 
How John, much money do you have for a ticket? If you said a hundred dollars, fine. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll put a hundred dollars in too. No. What what would what would your reflexive reaction be? <laughs> See, you're going to buy a ticket, okay? Because I was asking you about different stagings. You know, I, I'm thinking about the Don Giovanni character. You know, I'm thinking about Drake. So Drake in that character's role. I don't know. Maybe I got a thousand. I need to see that. But <laughs> we didn't talk about special casting. No, but I'm, okay. I'm using my imagination. See, I, I asked you if there was a certain staging, you know. So that's the staging for me. Mm. I need to see a celebrity on the stage. Okay. <laughs> but you know, but even just you know, with with the tried and true and wonderful singers that they get over there at Minnesota Opera, I I would match you know your hundred with my own to go see a production of this opera. Um, but again, I guess we'll see what the stagings are. Maybe they'll put out. See, now we're talking about marketing, you know, what sort of content you're creating to tease the event. So mm-hmm. there's all sorts of stuff that's required to get a different audience in front of, you know, this most classic of of operas. Anyway, shout out to Rocky Lee and Paige. Shout out to Minnesota Opera. It's been great to um, dialogue with them. Looking forward to more collaboration. Uh, But we're getting here into uh, this fourth movement, the Triloquy movement for this week. And we're going to jump into it with a little blues, you know, another uh, genre of American classical music as brought by Nina Simone at the uh, Montreux Jazz Festival. This is just a, a, a classic. I mean, if if you haven't just sat down and watched this video, you don't know Nina Simone. You know, you, you haven't seen her interact with the audience in this performance. You know, you haven't seen her at one point in the, in the show. She begins to play and she's like, hey, hey, you girl, sit down. Sit down. I guess she was trying to go to the bathroom or something, but the poor girl had to sit down because when Nina Simone tells you to sit down, you know, you sit down. Anyway, this is the Backlash Blues as performed by Nina Simone at the uh, Montreux Jazz Festival to get us into our fourth movement this week. Mr. Backlash, who do you think I am? You raise my taxes, freeze my wages, send my only son, son to Vietnam. You see what happened there? You give me second-class houses, second-class schools. You know all colored people in this country got to be second-class fools. And it's true now. That's the truth now. Backlash blues. I mean, we have the groove of it. We have the evolution, even at that point of the blues, because that's not the banana, na You know, that's a, a different type of blues. And mm-hmm. then the the uh, timeliness of the lyrics, talking about Vietnam, of course, talking about uh, uh, race rights and and black power. She was always talking about. Goodness, great! Do you know? Do you know that tune? I don't know Backlash Blues beyond this performance. Is that one made famous elsewhere? Or? No, I've not heard that one. That I'm, I'm mean, sure it is. Yeah, right. I'm sure it is. But you know, Nina Nina Simone really brought that, and she brought so much to the world. You know, when I when I think about Nina Simone uh, in conjunction with Triloquy, I think about her codification, at least for me, of the phrase "Black classical music," really affirming that blues and gospel and all of these things that she would uh, bring to the stage as American classical, as black classical. And, you know, that that has helped free my mind from certain constructs and and uh, and schemes, uh, you know, over my education you know, or the results of my education and to, to get me to think about things differently and to help 
other people think about these things differently, you know, so the, her activism, the music that she brought, you know, and so much, just the person that she was, I, I will always be a fan and she will always be someone I revere. Okay. I'm scrolling social media and from classic FM, there's an image of Nina Simone with one of her quotes where she says, once I understood Bach's music, I wanted to be a concert pianist. Bach made me dedicate my life to music. Okay. It's innocent enough and it's fine. But the reason I get an attitude about it is because I feel like there's a certain messaging that's coming forward and they're using Nina Simone's words and Nina Simone's legacy to put forward a message that I think is stretching the context of uh, this quote within her life towards something differently. You know, she said a lot more than Bach made her want to dedicate her life to music, you know, even about music and even about classical music specifically. Do you not think that there's a certain type of agenda or an attempt to look like something or be something in taking a quote from Nina Simone, this pro-black activist that we know, and, you know, uh, just siphoning all of her life down to Bach is great. And he's the reason why I dedicated my life to music. I don't know. I think that's a little, dare I say, inappropriate. Mm. Did she say that? The quote is hers. Yes. Well, I'm not going to bash anybody's experience or tastes or, or anything like that. And I see what you're getting at, that they're using her to uphold what say some sort of Bach, a, you know some sort of a canonic right ecosystem right this is right? why we we say we can continue to platform and play Bach because even y'all's favorite Nina Simone said that she loves Bach so y'all need to shut up because she said she loved it so we're going to continue to play it and platform it so something she said being used to another end which might be antithetical to the spirit of what she said I don't think Nina Simone would want to uphold the status quo around so-called classical music and using that quote in this way in an advertisement for your classical music programming and service, I think is an attempt to do that, to say that she would have been on board with a continued platforming of, of Bach. Isn't it interesting how you can find a quote to support <laughs> yep. something that you like mm -hmm. just about everywhere? Because if you want to talk about change or growth... Um, you have right on your Twitter feed a quote from Nina that says, I spent my years pursuing excellence. That is what classical music is all about. Now it's dedicated to freedom, and that's far more important. Yeah. Change, growth. I mean, but that's been on my... That, that, well, why do you bring that up? Why do you bring that quote up? Because you can, you can pull a quote from wherever you want to to prove whatever point you're trying to make, can't you? Okay, but and so you... I just showed I just showed something that was that she said uh, freedom is more important than classical music. Right, that's what I'm saying. Now, when we think about who this woman was, who this artist was, do you think the quote you just read from my Twitter encapsulates her spirit more, or the idea you know that I, Bach is the greatest? You know, I do. Okay, exactly. But see, not everyone does. There are people who will see that and have this skewed idea right. of, of who she was. Right. So anyway, um, this is Dia de los Muertos when we're uh, recording this anyway. And I think when we honor 
those who were in the past. When we honor Nina Simone, when we honor Bach, you know, to the extent to which, you know, he should be honored. We have to think about the competency piece. We have to be able to look through and see the intentions of certain organizations and why they're uh, pulling certain quotes and platforming uh, certain people and, you know, why even the advertisements make it to your eyes in the first place, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. anyway, I think we just need to think about these things. It's obvious that Nina Simone had an appreciation for Bach. I think it is not obvious that the appreciation for Bach match with the barriers to the field gave us this person who I just don't want to be misconstrued by lifting those sorts of quotes out of context. So, you know, go listen to some Nina Simone, go watch some of her interviews. And, you know, you tell me, you know, I'm, I'm giving you my perspective. So now you become more familiar with Nina Simone and you tell me whether or not you think once I understood Bach's music, I wanted to be a concert pianist. Bach made me dedicate my life to music. You tell me whether or not you think that appropriately encapsulates who she was as an artist, as an activist, and a person out here trying to fight for, for black freedom. We, we have to make sure that we're giving space to the whole person and not just what somebody can use out of a black person's mouth to justify something else. So go ahead and soundbite me. I'm, I'm sure, you know, my words can be oh, mixed that you way. You think that that hasn't happened? But, but, but be sure to include Scott's as well, because you know what? <laughs> he's sitting here with me. So if I'm problematic, he's problematic as well. Mm. All right. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. See you next week.